0: You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat Hannah Young. Gemma Kearney is a TV and radio presenter, best known for her work on BBC Radio 1 and BBC Radio 6 Music. She's held a number of regular slots in the BBC music schedule, including the early morning weekday breakfast sessions, which must have been both exhilarating and exhausting all at the same time. Gemma's an ambassador for Oxfam and a supporter of Women's Aid, and in addition to her music and arts work, has made a succession of hard-hitting documentaries and films. Her radio documentaries, Tempted by a Teacher, and Bruising Silence won prestigious Sony Gold Awards. And she's also won a Sony bronze for a blockbuster six music interview feature with singer Grace Jones, describing her as one of the most influential women she's ever encountered. Gemma has also written two books, with a third on the way focusing on influential but forgotten women of history. And last year, she, along with her fellow DJ Mark Ronson, headlined the British Consulate's Platinum Jubilee Party, hosted at Lincoln Centre, spinning the decks to over a thousand people under a 10-foot disco ball to celebrate life, love and her late majesty. It was epic and truly unique, and I'm still reeling from the energy of it all, which I think sums up my view of this amazingly talented woman. A couple of years ago, Gemma said, as a kid, you're made to think you'll be a grown up one day. Age 36, I see things differently. I'm so excited to know I never have to stop learning. I'm like a slightly older Dora the Explorer, curious and wide eyed about the future. Gemma, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. <laughs> Hello. We always start by asking our guests if they can tell us a little bit about their personal story. So I wondered if you could just talk to us about growing up and, and how you began this career journey.
1: I was born in Birmingham. And when I conceptualise it for myself, I see me being born into something very middle. And that's because I was in the middle of England in the middle of the 80s. I represent mixed heritage. For me, this fusion of multiculturalism in, in every way, even in a historic way creates this kind of inner culture clash but within symbiosis like a fun brilliant culture clash that I see is very British is me even though I was only in Birmingham until age two then we moved to South London I went to primary school there then we moved to Sussex which was quite different Rather than a culture clash, a culture shock, I went to an all girls secondary school that wasn't a private school, but was doing very well. And boy, didn't we know it because there was quite a lot of pressure to keep grades up. We had a horrible dark green uniform and I was one of the only black people that I knew in that area. It was a a bit weird. My teenage years were a little bit lost and I didn't really feel seen or understood. And that led me to do further education somewhere different. So I went back to London, age 16, studied at the Brit School, which was a big pivot. It was a super alternative space to be a free performing arts college. I did the grungy navel gazing theatre course, which was really bonkers at the time and included an entire term on the Velvet Underground. Like was my most formative years
0: thinking about identity and you know what that means for different people. And you know, you've already talked about the fact that it comes from different experiences and family heritage and what have you, but can you expand on that a little bit more and talk about what does identity mean for you and how has that kind of shaped your outlook? Being black and being British,
1: being Scottish, being Jamaican, being of my generation is a lifetime of thought. For me. And it's quite hard to encapsulate into words. It's probably why I've been led to communicate for a living because. I am always asking questions and I'm asking myself them and I'm writing them down, which is why I'm writing and exploring the written word and language, the effect of colonialism, the beauty of the UK and how weird it is in terms of nature and how changeable. When I look at my mother line and my mum went to school all around the world, though her parents were pretty staunch Glaswegians, my granddad's job took him to Geneva in Switzerland New York so there's just so many different parts of me and also I think us as a collective of as people here you know in the modern world having somehow survived a global pandemic and and learning uh, about such a, a melting pot of either atrocious or fascinating history and I, and I think identity is so personal. For me, my identity is a never-ending, exciting journey. It doesn't stop. Like my identity is made up of, yes, the countries that I've mentioned, but that means that my identity is made up of the world. And then when I think about that, that I think about how the world offers so much and my identity is also made up in another mother and that's like mother earth and Mm -hmm. how I love to swim in the sea and my connection to the elements it's just it's so many things but at the same time I'm proudly Jamaican proudly Scottish fine line of love and hate for for being on this weird cluster of islands that makes me British it's it's a a never-ending journey one that I like to think about one that i love to write about and talk about and one that i think that we should all feel like we want to talk about because our identity we're all fossils
0: and i love the idea of identity being a journey and not something that's a fixed point or a fixed set of parameters because i think we we so quickly try and put people in boxes don't we
1: i'm constantly trying to break free from the boxes that make me part of A category in a world that can sometimes be really oppressive. But I think in terms of being able to categorise my identity, it won't stop being
0: challenged. And that's a lot to do with travel. And music has been such a seminal part of that for you, and I guess remains so. Can you talk to me a little bit about your, maybe some of your early influences as well? It's bizarre to me that
1: I was at the Brit School, which is a free performing arts school, as I mentioned, at a time where people became massively famous for their extraordinary talent. The extraordinary talent was palpable. But at the same time, I don't I don't think that any of us thought that our dreams could come true to such a huge capacity. For example, Adele was in a couple of years below me, even though I wasn't actually at the Brit school when she was, so I'm that little bit older. A big gang of us who were alumni of the Brit school kind of knocking about together in similar parts of London. And we had this real DIY schooling ingrained into us to just keep creating if that's what made us feel good and alive and Adele you know was part of this big gang that I felt lucky enough to be in but I don't know whether we ever thought we'd go beyond that DIY sensibility of popping up in our local pub and we didn't have social media in the same way we're talking early noughties we didn't have mobiles to document it Mm-hmm. But we did, again, it goes back to that that imagination factor and that momentum to just do it. It, it is part of all of our memory boxes and, it, and it, it's related to my love of music, my love of creativity. And that's why I like so many genres. And I think I was already influenced in such a, a multifaceted way anyway, because, like I said, my mum went to secondary school in different parts of the world. My dad is like first generation Jamaican British. His parents came over it, you know, in the Windrush generation. He's super musical. He was in a funk band in the Midlands in the 70s called The High Flames, which was massively inspired by Earth, Wind and Fire. There's so much going on when I think about funk as a genre and how that was born. It was... Black music being reimagined, created in a way that w- was like all the many sounds of, of blackness as to where it was in history.
0: I'm really interested, actually, in what you were saying about social media and not having phones. And, you know, do you do you look back on those years and think, God, we were actually really lucky that we had the ability to just focus without so much more noise? How do you look back on those years and and kind of compare and contrast them to, you know, being more creative now?
1: Whenever I've been doing my digital detox thing and I have a tiny old school burner phone, AKA a Nokia, and I'll get it out and people will look at me as though there's actually something really (laughs) weird going on. So last year I did five months. When I was in New York, when I played at the Lincoln Center, everybody was so accommodating. And if anybody that is listening worked with me during this period last year, because it was five months I had a burner phone, no smartphone for five months that I worked with were luckily really patient and and that's just a a small example of how it alights the brain in a different way so creatively that's really interesting to be alone with your own thoughts but also in a really like basic on a day-to-day level it's nice it's calming it's calming to look up it soothes something within which I think if you are a a highly creative person or a highly sensitive person, that is a positive thing. Communication-wise, it's super interesting as well, because you realise who you want to be connected to, how you want to be connected to them. You miss people, you want to write to them. You ask them to call you on your landline, which I have still got. I've got a house phone. I
0: think that's so fascinating. And you're right, we can be so inherently restrictive by just following along with the the kind of monotony of short messages. And it encourages us to condense down our thoughts and our feelings in a way that actually stifles creativity and connections, actually. There is peace in being really bored. When you strip everything else back, just being in a, in the moment, being able to connect with people, you know, in that very basic human way actually is it's kind of what it's about ultimately.
1: And I think I've been trained in that without even realising that I was being. So studying theatre, it was about communication and connection. And I loved the liveness of theatre. Moving on to work in broadcast radio specifically, that live connection is something that I will never not love. It's one of my truest loves because you can't take away from the magic of a collective listen happening at that moment. Just last year, when I played the Lincoln Centre round the disco board at the time of my life. It was live, it was
0: happening. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your career, actually, because you, you got your first sort of major gig when you were just 23 years old, co-hosting The Breakfast Show at the BBC. And I wanted to ask you, what was it like to have that kind of creative ownership at quite a young age? I was thrilled.
1: I was thrilled. When you grow up, you're a brown woman and you're maybe a, a weird brown moment, which I was but I did not think that it was possible necessarily to achieve the things that I did or have done so being in the big smoke in living in London having a really great group of friends I've met at the Brit school so quite open-minded thinkers creative working at the BBC which obviously you just you just know has a gravitas I learned a lot about the BBC being within the organization coming into it is just is it so exciting working with trevor nelson was a dream come true and it's not what i expected struggle was the thing that i had always put my armor on for and I, I i don't necessarily know why it's got to do with so many things you know as to like why i thought that like being a grown-up was to struggle and suddenly I was actually having an amazing time. I was learning, I was laughing, I was around music, I was around this old school organization that was like nurturing me, helping me craft and learn my talent. And like, like kind of actually like hone into the best of myself was to have a lot of energy and speak to people and think about style and again, connection and I just went with it. I just, the, the momentum had begun and I just, I learned on the job. I had no idea how to drive a radio desk, which is like all the buttons that you have to press. But yeah, I never thought that I would be on the BBC doing a breakfast show with Trevor Nelson.
0: That's amazing. And to call that work as well is such a privilege, right? It, it makes me um, think of your the books that you've brought out. One, open a toolkit for how magic a messed up life can be. And open your heart, learn to love your life and love yourself. I mean, how how much of those are actually built on your own experiences and reflecting back over those early times and, you know, some of the challenges that you might not have necessarily seen or been conscious of, but reflect back on?
1: So I wrote Open, my first book, when I was turning 30 and I was so reflective. So by this point, I had been doing radio, been in the public eye, I'd met my heroes, etc. I'd done different radio shows for quite a few years. And I knew that something needed to change because I was growing and I wanted my career to grow with that. So I wanted to move on from the punchiness of youth culture.
0: The edginess,
1: the flame was lit. You know, I wanted, I wanted to grow. I also felt this huge responsibility by this point. I was hosting The Surgery, which is a call-in problem page, essentially, on air, where I was an agony aunt, for Radio One, the biggest youth radio station in the UK, if not the world. And it's a really important show. Every week we were coming up against some really problematic issues which I thought were pretty pertinent to the times. The social media becoming a reflection of ourselves, the Kardashians becoming hugely popular and and creating issues with how young women thought about their bodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was thinking about me as an early teen. I was reflective of my own life and then looking at young people in the modern light. I've had a troubled time at points. I had a troubled teenage time. And if I had been 14 in 2009, 10, how troubled would it, would it have been? And I couldn't say that it wouldn't be really, really bad mm-hmm. if, if I had access to the overwhelm of information that was available at that particular point. So I researched, I went to schools, I spoke to young, young men, young women. I spoke to people in school and I asked what was going on in their minds, what was going on in their worlds. And the way that people opened up was unforgettable. And I decided to research certain matters and it just went on and on and on and on because I couldn't stop. And then also it became not just about me, it became about us it became about humanity. It became about growing up in this world. And that's why there's contributors in the original open. There's lots of contributors because I would suddenly start writing about something that hadn't necessarily affected me. So I'd have to outsource, whether it would be speaking to a charity, speaking to somebody who'd been through it, commissioning somebody else to write an excerpt. And it became this huge kind of love letter to life. But it spoke about some of the really scary things, some of the things that make us feel uncomfortable, some of
0: the things that we really wish that young people didn't have to think about, but mm-hmm. they did and then talk to me about how that how that sort of feeds into the second book.
1: Open is like this huge compartmentalized idea and concept. it's a it's a podcast series two paperbacks and one hardback. I've heard that in terms of feedback over the years that if you're working with young people that are particularly vulnerable, if you're workshopping in spaces where people find it hard to communicate, Open's been a really good mm. reference. And the new book is my first adult title. It's called The Immortal Sisterhood. It's coming out on Canongate, which is a Scottish publisher. And I'm living in Scotland now. And um, it's about connection of women, and it's about how I believe that we're all interconnected. And that goes through the history of time. So I've chosen 12 women, and I've picked part of their stories. I've been highlighting part of the story that I've heard or researched and putting them into the immortal sisterhood, and then trying to connect them by creating space even like on the page like near one another or it's me that comes in it's something from my life that feels close to something that one of the women has experienced or went through and it is it's quite formless dare i say it it's, it has to have poetry we're yes. talking about life it's quite dreamlike it's almost like liminal essays of course it's historic because each of these women are real life people to have lived or are living.
0: What kind of conversations or topics or thoughts do you want people to take from from it? What are you thinking about as you're writing it? It feels so special, if I'm honest. Like I
1: feel emotional thinking about it. It's taken me a long time to write this. Really find it quite a powerful subject matter. I love life. I love my life and it's <laughs> and I've had to learn to love it as well. So it's a celebration and and i hope that it's a positive coming together of words and in terms of themes fortitude luminosity fashion joy pleasure medicine herbalism there's so much wonderlust travel these women to me represent so many things that are important in my life and being part of a sisterhood that i believe that i am and it kind of invites everybody to to join in and explore those themes. I really want people that read it to be given the gift of joy and confidence to live their life in the way that they want to.
0: Yeah, and, and just listening to you, it feels authentic, right? It feels like it's coming from you and your soul. I think it's a
1: beautiful thing to be a woman and I, th- and I really want us to feel like we can be so many things.
0: Well, I just wanted to end actually going back to your time in New York uh last year, playing at the Platinum Jubilee party, you know, underneath that incredible disco ball to, you know, so many people, um, having that connection, enjoying life through the power of music and 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 actually also with the the overlay of silence because it was a silent disco and that juxtaposition of everybody moving together to music. But when you then take those headphones off, I mean, you can hear people humming. That's what I love about it. Just so powerful. And, and I would love for you to talk about that in your own words. I DJed opposite a giant disco ball.
1: What a dream. Um, somebody who romanticizes the old school New York creative Scene from Studio 54 to, you know, really trying to imagine the, the the everyday life of all of the creatives and people that were around in New York in the 70s. So, to suddenly be there opposite a disco ball was enough to ignite <laughs> what happened. A silent disco is really brilliant theatrically because it's quite funny. So it takes away the seriousness of of a muso gig or a music gig. Its core is to have fun and experiment because you really do want to see how people can lose their inhibitions whilst wearing headphones. For me, that's that's really a, a good time. I was in a golden outfit. Made by British iconic designer Zandra Rhodes. You looked incredible. Felt like I was in a dream, and I hadn't been there very long. I've been there a few hours, and it's kind of like um, a spiritual thing. Music, really, isn't it? Because it's just it's there, and everything had been set up, and I I had the outfit, and it was a sunny afternoon. And if I'm completely honest, and I'm really sorry if people are major royalists, to get out of the UK for the Jubilee was symbolic in itself for me because I was finding the consistency of the Union Jack, which, you know, has been co-opted in really like peculiar ways in the UK. And this really patriotic rhetoric, like a bit exhausting, but at the same time to celebrate, to think about jubilance Mm -hmm. as an idea, to bring people together, to think about um, what it means in an international city post-pandemic diaspora uh, and people that um, are British and live in New York City and play old school garage, you know, to people that might have lived in London in the 90s. It was just really exciting. Going back to the thrill, you like the thrill of my jobs. Yeah, dance is like, it's really important to you. And I felt that. I felt that in in the heart of a New York City that That early evening, this encapsulation of people together dancing through whatever the times may be, it's so cathartic.
0: Oh, Gemma, thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for bringing such thoughtful insights, actually. You've certainly challenged me on the habits that we get into not always helpful including around phones and social media and we're really excited about the book and um and and thank you so much again for bringing your joie de and your philosophy and beautiful eclectic musical tastes to what was such an incredible experience for everybody and really looking forward to finding more opportunities to work with you in the future
1: thank you i really mean that as well because it's all of this stuff it's definitely not possible if it was just me it's, it's a collective feeling. We've talked about connection the entire time and the universal language of music is the perfect metaphor for that. Like, we've all got it in us to have a boogie and to turn our phones off and play our favourite song. It's as simplistic as that really. It's a togetherness that you can't intellectualise. I'm thankful that everybody is up for that.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.